This is the Swampscott Library's Librarians by the Sea podcast, where we share our love of a good book with you. I'm your host, Julie Travers. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good. Can And we think thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. I know you're oh, no busy. problem. Actually, very flattered. Oh, good. Um, and I had a chance to read your book, your newest book, I think, Citizen Akoi. Oh, you, oh, you saw that? Okay. Yeah. Um, so we got it for the library. I think it came out maybe a year or so ago. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so if you don't mind, I'd love to ask you a couple of questions about it. Oh, you know, no. After some just general questions. Um, yeah. So just to start, I'm wondering if you might be able to tell us a little bit about your career path to becoming a writer and maybe some highlights of your career as a writer. Sure. I mean, I, I went to journalism school at University of Missouri and um, started my career as a newspaper reporter um, in sports um, in Kansas City. And then I came to Boston um, for, to work for the Globe as a sports writer. Um, and I covered a variety of sports and did long, for, long form stories. But then I transitioned uh, to become a news writer, uh, general assignment news. Um, the, the thing was that sports writing was uh, forcing me to travel so much. Mm-hmm. And when my daughter was born, I uh, suddenly didn't want to be traveling too much. Right. Uh, it, was, uh, it was more interesting to be at home and I wanted to be a father. And so I just transitioned over to the news desk at the Boston Globe where I worked locally and that evolved into political coverage and eventually they sent me over to Boston City Hall and I covered uh, City Hall for about three or four years. Uh, um, Then I left the Globe, um, did a year at WHDH-TV as an assistant producer uh, jumped over to a, an old line sports magazine called the Sporting News for about five years and covered a variety of things and mostly baseball. Uh, then <laughs> transitioned back into news writing with the Boston Herald. Um, they brought me in to cover City Hall and the State House, hmm. which I did for about five years. And then um, transitioned again to TV. I got a job with ESPN, um, was a researcher and producer um, on some of their long form documentaries and on a show called E60, which was uh, like a news magazine show. Mm. Um, so that was my, that was my last full-time job. Um, since about 216 i've just been uh uh freelancing doing my own projects basically mm. um does journalism you know in terms of writing and then producing tv are those are those similar did you find it difficult to transition to tv after being no not really um mm. it's you know the elements are the same i mean you you want to get um accurate information and you want to put it together in a narrative that a story that makes sense uh, is logical and and holds an audience. So I mean, your your basic task 
always is to um, grab an audience and hold it, whether you're writing a news story uh, or doing a TV um, story. Um, you know, TV is a little more uh, layered because it's got visuals mm -hmm. and audio. Uh, you know, print is pretty fairly simple. Um, but, um, you know, print offers advantages too that, that, you, that you don't have with TV or TV or, or radio. So, mm. um, I think journalism, you know, is journalism. The main, the first, the first cardinal rule is to be accurate and make sure the information you're conveying is, is correct and fair and balanced and, um, has a you know an honest genuine sensibility to it hmm. so it seems like you've covered a lot of subjects different subjects Are, is there a particular one that you liked the most um, that you worked on or even sport that you enjoy writing you know um in sports um sports is an entertainment it's it's how people escape so um but but there's you know business aspects to it there's health aspects to it. So there are there's there are some hard news aspects to sports, but in sports I always felt that I you know my my job was to help people escape and you know be entertained. Um, in news, you know, covering hard news stories, whether you know I had the police beat for a while in Boston, mm. um, or whether it was city hall or state house. I mean, those are things that really affect affect people's lives you know they the systems and the processes that control law enforcement and education and health care mm -hmm. so um it's less of you're you're not so much trying to entertain people as to just make sure they're informed so that they can you know make smart decisions and informed decisions about how they want their government to operate it's a you know i um, I don't diminish the importance of the sports section or any of the entertainment sections, you know, food, um, or living and all those things. But, but I, I, I think there's a reason that the front page is the front page and it, it contains the hard news mm -hmm. of the day. It's because those are the, um, those are the most important things that, you know, people need to know. Yeah, and probably now more than ever. I mean, even I know that my news consumption has been up the last couple of months and just recently as well, just because there's so much going on in the world and it's hard to, you have to be informed in so many different ways, so. Yeah. You know, you just took the words right out of my mouth. I, I mean, we live in a era of um, information overload almost, mm -hmm. and it's coming at us, you know, really good information from so many directions. Um, and um, you want to you want to absorb as much as you can to be as informed as you can. But sometimes I find myself having to make like triage decisions. You know, I, mm -hmm. I'd love to read that story, but I just don't have the time. And this story is more important. And, I, and I'm picking my issues that I that I'm trying to stay informed on, which means that I'm leaving other issues out. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, uh, we, my wife and I subscribe to uh, um, 
three newspapers. We get the, the Globe, not print, but we get digital. Mm-hmm. Um, the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, plus I read, you know, the local news that comes in on the patch or the Swampscott Reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get the New Yorker, which comes every week and it's just chock full of great stories and and online they have the new yorkers added a whole online um selection of stories that aren't in print that that almost operates like a daily newspaper Mm -hmm. um i mean i love the fact that there's all this great journalism available now um but i sometimes i'm you know i'm frustrated that i can't get to all of it i mean i i feel people I, I feel people should support their local news operations because it's important to cover local stuff, even, you know, Swampska town meetings, um, coverage of the state in Boston is important. Um, but I, I think that, you know, the, the what's happened in the last few years is that there's been, and maybe the, just the internet's responsible for this, people are more focused on national, international stories, mm-hmm. what's happening in Washington. And, and so there's, there's fewer resources to cover local stuff, uh, right. which is not a, not a good thing. Mm-hmm. But so I, you know, I encourage everybody I know to like, you know, take out subscriptions to local newspapers and, um, you know, support any local news media. It's 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 healthy for for uh, you know for for the economy for for the government and just a uh, you know functioning democracy. I think. Mm. So, in terms of your own writing, um, w- sort of what are your own personal research and writing processes usually like, and are they different now that we're sort of you know isolated and. Uh, my approach is when I pick a subject, it's sort of like a carpet bombing approach. Mm-hmm. I just, I just go, first of all, you know, my first phase is just collect as much information as I can, mm-hmm. um, do as much research, whatever's, you know, available in print or archival information, um, grab all that, do as much reading as possible. And then you know, move into the, my own interview phase where I just line up the key interviews I need to do and uh, create a list and, you know, check, check off everybody that's, you know, a priority and then keep moving down the list to maybe less important interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never feel like I have enough information, no matter how much I collect. You know, that's probably the reporter in me you're always worried that there's something out there that you missed. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end, when you sit down to write, you should feel so immersed in the subject. You've been doing such intense research that you, sh- you shouldn't f- be too paranoid that, that you're missing something. You know, you should feel fairly comfortable. You've got everything. Um, and then you just start trying to assemble it into some co- coherent narrative. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it, it's it's funny. You you collect all this information, but then the actual information that makes it into your story or your book, it's probably you know twenty five percent or less. Because you know, part of the job of a 
author is to is to keep out or cut out the excessive or unimportant information that bog it down bog down the story mm-hmm. you know you just you want the you want the uh, the really crucial or vital information to carry the story mm-hmm. and have many of your um articles been turned into books um that we usually start you know all of my books kind of flowed from my journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, my first book was, uh, I, one of my beats with, with the Boston Globe was covering boxing back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a golden era of boxing. There was this superstar in Boston, Mass, uh, from Brockton named Marvin Hagler, and he was the middleweight champion. And he had a rivalry with Sugar Ray Leonard. And um, there were all these big names, Roberto Duran. So I covered that era and and then uh, got away from it, drifted away from it. And boxing kind of declined after, you know, st- starting in the mid nineties or something. It, it Other things kind of pushed it to the fringes, but around 207 or 208, I, and it, this was probably 20 years after I had stopped covering boxing. I just decided to, you know, tell the story of what happened back in the 80s and all these um, great fighters and their rivalry. And so I focused on Marvin Hagler, who was the Massachusetts guy, and Sugar Ray Leonard, who was sort of the Olympic, national, international glamour boy and their rivalry. And they fought back in uh, April of 1987. And it was a controversial bout that's still argued about today and Sugar Ray Leonard won a split decision over Hagler and so that was sort of the premise of the book you know it was it's called Sorcery at Caesars the fight was at Caesars Palace and Hmm. uh, Leonard kind of worked his magic to win the fight and that's what he was sort of a you know magician in the ring and so that's why it's called Sorcery at Caesars um and that was easy to do because I, you know, I had covered that back in the eighties and I had all the contacts, you know, I could just reach back and call these people and talk to them. And, um, and I just sort of re reconstructed what I had lived through as a sports writer. And that was kind of fun. And, and, and it was well received. The book, the book did pretty well. And people were grateful that I sort of reconstructed that uh, episode of, sports history hmm. and that that kind of whetted my appetite you know I, I thought well that was kind of fun and with a book you really get to write more of a long form than if you're just doing a magazine or a newspaper story so um, you can kind of air it out and you know make it more subtle and nuanced than a than a shorter piece so hmm. um, so I guess having done the first one that kind of gave me the impetus to do the second one. And do you look for, you know, sort of like a big game or, you know, a a really exciting matchup? Is that, that sort of becomes the the pinnacle of the book? You know, I'm, I like history. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I mean, there's, I think there's so much to learn from history and, um, um, in history, you know, you have enough time to to think about it and uh, put it in perspective of what's happened. So, 
after the boxing book, I was thinking about something that happened um, in high school. I was in high school in Omaha, Nebraska, and it was this dramatic event that uh, I lived through, but it wasn't until, you know, 40 years later that I've, it occurred to me that this could be a book. Hmm. And what had happened was that the, it was the, the collision of high school basketball in Omaha, Nebraska with the presidential campaign of 1968. Um, you know, I, I know that sounds crazy, but um, there was a racist third party candidate, George Wallace, the former governor of Alabama, and he was um, in the presidential race in 68. It was a, you know, I'm sure you know, 1968 was just a, mm. a volatile, you know, explosive year uh, in our history, a, kind of a watershed year. Um, that not unlike 220, really, not unlike 220. Right. I mean, you know, there were riots in the inner cities and the Vietnam War. Uh, we didn't have a pandemic, but, <laughs> but it, it seemed, you know, and there were two terrible assassinations in 68. And for a high school kid, it, you know, it felt like the, the world was blowing up. Um, but the, the best basketball player in the state who was at my high school and, and my high school team was expected to win the state championship. He was infuriated, infuriated that George Wallace, this racist candidate came to Omaha to campaign. And the best basketball player is an African-American kid. And he, he went out and uh, protested Wallace's appearance and there were riots. Uh, there was a riot in the predominantly uh, black neighborhood in Omaha and he was arrested three days before the state tournament mm. and it, it made national news. I mean, it made, you know, um, the ABC nightly news um, that this you know, this kid was arrested in Omaha protesting George Wallace. And eventually, you know, the story played out. He was released a day before the tournament. And, um, you know, there were state troopers surrounding the, the, the building where the tournament was played and so forth. It was a big story. And it occurred to me 40, 40 years later, wow, that was a slice of history, really rich mm. and dramatic in one of the most dramatic years in our country's history. And unless you lived in Omaha, most people never knew, never had heard about it, didn't know right. about it. So I said, all right, you know, I can tell that story. And, and I dove into it and reached back and found, you know, a lot of the people that were there at the time that, you know, there were high, in high school or teachers, um, police officers, politicians, and did my research and, and uh, wrote it up and University of Nebraska Press took it. They were happy to take it. Mm. And that became my second book. It was called The Rhythm Boys of Omaha Central. Mm. Um, and the Rhythm Boys was the nickname of this all black team at Central High School. That was my high school. Mm -hmm. um, it's the oldest high school in, in Nebraska. It's it's a venerable school. One of the, it in the mid 
20th century, it was ranked among the top 20 high schools in the country. Um, but um, this was sort of a notorious, infamous episode in the school's history. Mm. And um, so it was, uh, you know, it was well received in Omaha's, uh, got a lot of press coverage. Um, you know, people were um, grateful that I was able to go recreate these events from 1968. Um, and all in all, it was, you know, for me as an author and writer, it was a very rewarding, gratifying experience. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a good one to revisit right now. And when you give the summary, it sounds like it could be happening today. I think 1968, I think to some of us old timers, you know, we're looking at today, we're looking at the presidential campaign and the the division in the country and the chaos from, you know, the whole layer of the pandemic. And, and I told my kids, you know, who, my kids went to, grew up in Swampscott and went to Swampscott schools. I said, I said, I know, I know this feels like, you know, you know, something like this has never happened. Um, and it's crazy, but mm. it felt, it feels a little a bit like 1968, really. Mm -hmm. Probably good to remember that it's not, yeah, not the end of the world. I mean, this is, these events have happened throughout the course of history, so. Yeah, I mean, just roll back to 9-11, 2000, mm -hmm. you know, how how crazy was that? Right. Um, so getting into your latest book, Citizen Akoi, um, I, I think I, what I appreciated the most is that it's, you know, there is a part of it that's about sports, but there's a larger part of it that's about um, a lot of aspects of life in Sudan and, um being a Sudanese immigrant to the U.S. So what kind of research did you do about Sudan, South Sudan, um, in order to write the book? Um, well, that, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I wouldn't have written that book if it was just about the basketball career of this, of this uh, Sudan, Sudanese immigrant in Omaha. Mm. Um, but the overlay the story of his family's journey out of South Sudan, you know, and their struggles to, to make it and assimilate and, you know, make a new home in this country. And uh, particularly in the context of um, our political debate over immigrants and so forth, I, th I thought it was very relevant in, a, in a, a way to humanize a story that often gets told in sort of institutional you know, terms. Um, but the, the, the first, um, the main uh, research I did was to go out to Omaha and talk to every South Sudanese person I could meet, mm. including uh, Akoya's family, the, the, the uh, centerpiece of the book, Akoya Gao. Um, he welcomed me, his mother did, um, you know, his other relatives, people in the community who ran stores or, you know, had jobs in various parts of Omaha. They, they were all very open to the story and they were all very proud of Akoi. So naturally they wanted to be part of it. So it was just, um, I think I went out there in um, the spring of 216 and then the fall of 216 and spent 
several weeks just talking to South Sudanese refugees who landed in Omaha. Um, most people don't know this, but Omaha, Nebraska has one of the largest, if not the largest population of South Sudanese refugees in the country. Mm. So it's estimated it's somewhere maybe now 13 to 15,000. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And, and they're there be, for a reason. And part of it is that once you get a critical mass, it just attracts more people. They, they want to be part of a large welcoming community. But there mm -hmm. are jobs there in the, in the meat plants. Um, and as we know, those are dangerous jobs, um, particularly during the pandemic. The, there was spotlighting, uh, spotlight on those meat plant jobs. There, there were mm -hmm. high rates of infections among workers because they work so close together. But they're essential jobs. They kept, you know, they kept food coming to the to the country. Um, but those are jobs available that they could get, and um, and there were other there were other um, industries out there that had jobs. And um, the other reason I think that um, Omaha became a landing destination point for African refugees is that the housing is affordable. It's not, it's not as expensive as say on the East coast or West coast. Mm -hmm. And the, and the public schools are pretty good. And, and you know, they wanted, they wanted their kids to be educated and have, you know, have a decent education and, and they have a good tradition of supporting their public schools out there. Mm -hmm. so, um, but um, yeah, the, the story of the refugee community and um, what it meant to this, you know, very Midwestern city and, and how um, this one family was part of that um, and how uh, the kid that is the centerpiece, Sequoia, how he used basketball as his vehicle to be to become assimilated, to feel American, you know, to feel like he belonged and to have people embrace him as a friend and a, you know, fellow citizen. Um, you know, basketball was his, he was fortunate that he was very athletic and tall, you know, six, eight. And mm. So not everybody has those advantages, but he took what he was given by, you know, biology and genetics and um, made the most use of it and became the first player in Nebraska high school history to win four straight championships at the large school level. Mm. And um, he was also quite a personality and character who the media out there, you know, uh, couldn't get enough of him. Right. Um, he knew that that was, you know, a way to help himself. And, and he was heavily recruited by the best college programs around the country. Um, of course, he needed that scholarship because his family couldn't afford to send him to college. So, but he got a full ride and ended up going to Louisville. Uh, but his college career was a whole different story. I didn't, that's not really part of the book. It's, it's really his journey through growing up in Omaha. I think his family landed there when he was eight or nine. And um, so it tells the story of 
maybe his uh, 10 years from age eight to 18, pretty much. Mm. Um, the school, you know, he went to my high school, so I had contacts there from, from the previous book, The Rhythm Boys, and they welcomed me in and the teachers all talked to me and told me stories about how he uh, filled up the hallways with his personality. Um, so, um, and I felt, you know, I felt that some of that uh, detail from his classroom experience, um, some of the courses he embraced, some of the extracurriculars, really painted a picture of a refugee kid who um, embraced his new citizenship and became an American in the deepest sense. Mm. Uh, and um, so it was, it was also a very gratifying book to do. Yeah. Although I will say not as successful as the Rhythm Boys book. Mm. <laughs> and this is a whole different thing, but I probably could have structured it differently now that, you know, uh, hindsight, I look back, um, you know, there's different ways to create a narrative mm -hmm. um, and create a book. And um, sometimes we get um, too comfortable doing things we've done in the past and think, well, that's the way to do it. Right. And I think you have to be open to new structures and as a writer. And so if I had to do this book over Citizen Okoye, I, I would do it in a different way. Do you know which way that would be? Or yeah. 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 It, it's more, I call it a mosaic type rather than a linear narrative. Mm -hmm. In a mosaic, each chapter is almost sort of standalone, but you take a different story, like a chapter about his mother, maybe about this teacher or a, or, or a pastor in the community. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, you know, I don't, I wouldn't just tell the story of his four years, one, two, three, four, like that. Um, it would, it would be more of a tapestry uh, mosaic style so that you could drop into any part of the book and read something without having to know what happened in an earlier chapter, something like that. Mm. I think that would have been a better, better approach. But <laughs> as you say, as I say, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Right. Yeah. Reading the book, I think I was, I mean, the book is obviously about him and his life, but I was also rooting for his parents and, you know, different members of his community. There's so many interesting characters or, you know, real people in the book that, and you tell their story. And I, I enjoyed particularly his mother's story since she had a, a little bit more perspective on her journey to the U S and. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I and, and she was just a, such an admirable character, you know, mm. her strength and getting her family out of a terrible situation in Khartoum. This was in the late nineties and she took her small children to Cairo and worked menial jobs to put food in their mouth. And, and her husband was in jail and you know he'd been imprisoned in Khartoum. It was a terrible, they were having a civil war there. And, um, you know, the, the South Sudanese, the tribes were the, were being persecuted. 
so they had to get out and it was just through her really strength um, that she was able to survive and get her children out and finally they they applied to the uh, for refugee status and were just thrilled to death when the U.S. gave them a green light to come here mm. after 9-11. Um, she, you know, Akoi's uh, mother is almost worthy of a book all her own, really. Right. One thing, another thing that struck me about the book was um, in probably your other book about sports at this high school, uh, is how different sport high school sports are <laughs> in Nebraska and how they are in uh, Massachusetts. And maybe it's just my personal high school experience, but I just find them sort of different. Um, do you think that they are as well? Or? Uh, explain. I'm not quite sure what you, I'd like to, I'm interested in what you're referring to. Oh, it seems like these people are, or this guy in particular is almost like a superstar in, um, in the entire city, which is maybe just different from my personal high school experience. But are high school sports as exciting and you know, or do crowds come in to, to watch these games? Yeah, you know, that's a good point. I think you're right. And, and the reason I'm thinking is in a place like Omaha, we don't have the Red Sox. They don't have the Red Sox or the Patriots or the Celtics or the, you know, they don't have the, that whole layer of professional sports. Mm -hmm. So the, so the local sports become more important, you know, okay. they're, they're more, they get more coverage in the media. People pay more attention to it. And, and here, you know, you know what it's like in Massachusetts if, if the Red Sox are in the World Series or the Patriots are in the playoffs. I mean, they just suck up all the oxygen, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. So I, I think it is different, you know, out, out in some of those, you, what you would call Omaha is like a minor league city. Right. <laughs> it's always had, it's had like minor league baseball teams or, you know, maybe uh, at one time it had a minor league hockey team. So, um, yeah, I think people maybe pay, pay more attention to their high school uh, teams and their athletes. Hmm. I forgot to mention that um, the book I did before the Citizen Akoi book was um, uh, in Boston. It was a book about a high school in Boston called Fenway High. Hmm. Um, and this this um, came out in you know two thirteen or something. It's called Next Up at Fenway, and Fenway High was a, a very innovative, progressive school in the Boston school system that happened to be located right behind Fenway Park, and um, it it occurred to me that it, it was kind of interesting that this school that um, you know, uh, applied sort of progressive education ideas and um, also had this <laughs> uh, unusual location. How many high schools are located behind a major league ballparks? So I went over there in, in like 210 um, and just introduced myself to the principal um, and said, I'm curious, what you know, what's it like to, to have kids go to school here when you can hear the, <laughs> starting in April, you can hear the crowd roar outside your windows and right. the streets are filled with, you know, fans and so forth. And, and she was a, you know, 
very brilliant woman. Um, and she was kind of curious as to why I was interested, but she was very patient and uh, sat down with me and explained uh, to me what, how they operate the school. And they had a, they had a baseball team and, and a lot of the kids who, <laughs> who went to Fenway High were, were fanatical baseball fans and their interest was only uh, heightened by the fact of the location. Um, and she and she said, you know, if you want to do something, if you if you want to write about Fenway High, you're welcome. Uh, I'll I'll make it. Um, uh, I'll open the doors for you here and introduce you to people, and um, you can have the run of the hallways. Um, and it was too tempting not to do. Right. Um, so, for that year. 210, 211, and then part of the next year, I spent a lot of time at the high school. Um, the teachers, a lot of them got used to me just dropping into the back of their classroom and sitting down and, and observing. Uh, the principal, Peggy Kemp, set me up with five students who um, met with me intermittently to tell me about what was going on in their life, in their studies. And they kept journals for me. I gave them a little journal to write notes in of things that are happening. Um, and so that was the basis for the book, Next Up at Fenway, a story of high school hope um, and Lindo Sueños. Mm. Lindo Sueños is Spanish for a beautiful dream. It was a program run by the Red Sox. Um, the Red Sox Foundation to uh, for kids who like baseball, uh, the Lindo Sueños program. And every year they would take kids, um, high school kids on a trip down to the Dominican Republic hmm. to a, base, a baseball camp. And they would get to work out for a week or two, you know, with um, coaches and uh, upper level players um, so was, that was that was their beautiful dream, Lindo Sueños. But um, for a lot of the kids at Fenway, and particularly the kid that I focused on, who lived in the Mission Maine projects in Boston, um, wonderful kid, really smart. He loved baseball. Um, his Lindo Sueños was to to be grow up to become a pro baseball player, which didn't happen. But <laughs> but that's what that was his inspiration when he went to Fenway High. Hmm. Is it? Do you find it um, interesting to interview people or kids at the start of their career as they get more interested in a sport than as it relates to professional athletes that you've interviewed in your career as well? Well, it depends. Um, I mean, I, I always enjoy in, in interviewing young adults, um, teenage, you know, teenagers that are, you know, somewhere near the end of their high school, something like that, because um, they're so earnest, mm -hmm. you know, and they have such um, aspirations and, um, you know, you, you wish you could make their dreams come true, but um, I, I, I enjoy hearing them express what they're seeing in the world, how they're internalizing events and what their hopes and dreams are they're just on the verge of adulthood and mm -hmm. they're, they're at a key point 
key transitions. So I always find that interesting. I mean, um, even when I was covering pro sports, um, it was a mixed bag. Some some athletes uh, were great interviews. They were honest and genuine, and they appreciated the time and effort that you made talking to them. And then others were just resentful. You, you know, they surly. They didn't want to give you their time. They felt you were taking something from them, a freebie, you know, that they didn't, you weren't paying them for their time. You know, there were, there were all kinds of bad apples, you know, in, in, in pro locker rooms, but, um, you know, those people are easy enough to avoid because there's enough people there that, that are fine to talk to and, um, easy to talk to. So. It reminds me of in this book, Citizen Okoye, how much time you must have spent looking at this guy's Twitter from, you know, 10 years ago at this point. You know, <laughs> going through all those tweets. And... That's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. That was that was a huge asset in, mm. in doing that. Um, once I figured out how to research old old tweets, you know, and pull up archive tweets, it was easy. He, he got on Twitter, um, I, it was sometime early in his high school career, and it functioned pretty much like a diary of his mm. thoughts. And, you know, that's, that's invaluable because that's in time, in real time. You go back to, you know, his freshman year, his sophomore year, he's, and he's tweeting about his coach or a game or his family or something that happened with his girlfriend. And it's a, it's a kind of a clue to what was happening to the narrative that without Twitter, I would have no way of knowing that because he didn't actually keep a real diary. Right. Twitter was the closest thing to it and some Facebook posts. But um, I was so happy to have that as a source um, because it, it was kind of a, a guidepost to, to how to help put the story together. I knew at every step of the way, you know, each of his high school years, what he was feeling and what, you know, what he was going through. So, um, yeah, I'm very grateful to Twitter that, that, uh, that it provided that archived material. Mm, that's great. Thank you for your time. I mean, it's really generous of you and definitely learned a lot about your career and the books, all your books. Um, usually at the end of the episode, I ask, whoever I'm interviewing about something interesting that they've read recently um, as a way to suggest. Oh, yeah. I don't you know, know if you have anything. I, I'm reading a really, really good book. Um, uh, it's called Barbarian Days. Mm. Oh, sur I've read that. Surfing. You've read it? Yes. I loved it. Good for you. Um, mm. Yeah, it won the 216 Pulitzer Prize for autobiography. Mm -hmm. And um, written by William Finnegan, who's a longtime... Uh, staff writer for the New Yorker and it, it's just a deep dive into the subculture of surfing and um, uh, sort of like a uh, it tells about his journeys around the world um, where you know various uh, waves that he surfed in various parts of the world and and how surfing helped him develop his identity and character um, I'm just, it's a, <laughs> it's just really great. It's a great summer book actually and great escapism and mm. makes me kind of 
envious and jealous of him for having surfing when I never got to surf even <laughs> once. <laughs> you can still get out there, but you got to be careful of the sharks these days, I guess. <laughs> I know, I know. And actually, you know, in Swampscott, we, you, you go over to Nahant Beach and mm. um, you can see surfers. They're, they're doing it over there. Right. Yeah, they're, they're great to watch just to see what they're doing. Yeah. Nice. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Oh, uh, as th thanks for having this uh, Library by the Sea podcast. It's really a great con contribution to the community, and I wish you luck with it. Oh, thank you.